Section 10 of The Letters of Mark Twain Complete. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White. The Letters of Mark Twain Complete by Mark Twain. Volume 2. Chapter 9. Letters, 1868 to 1870 courtship and the innocence abroad the story of mark twain's courtship has been fully told in the completer story of his life it need only be briefly sketched here as a setting for the letters of this period in his letter of january eighth we note that he expects to go to elmira for a few days as soon as he has time but he did not have time or perhaps did not receive a pressing invitation until he had returned with his manuscript from California. Then, through young Charles Langdon, his Quaker City shipmate, he was invited to Elmira. The invitation was given for a week, but through a subterfuge, unpremeditated and certainly fair enough in a matter of love, he was enabled to considerably prolong his visit. By the end of his stay he had become really like one of the family, though certainly not yet accepted as such. The fragmentary letter that follows reflects something of his pleasant situation. The Mrs. Fairbanks mentioned in this letter had been something more than a shipmother to Mark Twain. She was a woman of fine literary taste and Quaker City correspondent for her husband's paper, the Cleveland Herald. She had given Mark Twain sound advice as to his letters, which he had usually read to her, and had in no small degree modified his early natural tendency to exaggeration and outlandish humor. He owed her much, and never failed to pay her tribute. Fragment of a Letter to Mrs. Jane Clemens and Family in St. Louis Elmira, New York, August 26, 1868 Dear Folks, you see i am progressing though slowly i shall be here a week yet maybe two for charlie langdon cannot get away until his father's chief business man returns from a journey and a visit to mrs fairbanks at cleveland would lose half its pleasure if charlie were not along moulton of st louis ought to be there too we three were mrs f's cubs in the quaker city she took good care that we were at church regularly on Sundays, at the Eight Bells prayer meeting every night. And she kept our buttons sewed on and our clothing in order, and in a word was as busy and considerate and as watchful over her family of uncouth and unruly cubs, and as patient and as long-suffering withal as a natural mother. So we expect. August 25th didn't finish yesterday something called me away i am most comfortably situated here this is the pleasantest family i ever knew i only have one trouble and that is they give me too much thought and too much time and invention to the object of making my visit pass delightfully it needs just how and when he left the langdon home the letters do not record 
early that fall he began a lecture engagement with james redpath proprietor of the boston lyceum bureau and his engagements were often within reach of elmira he had a standing invitation now to the langdon home and the end of the week often found him there yet when at last he proposed for the hand of livy langdon the acceptance was by no means prompt he was a favorite in the langdon household but his suitability as a husband for the frail and gentle daughter was questioned however he was carrying everything just then by storm the largest houses everywhere were crowded to hear him papers spoke of him as the coming man of the age people came to their doors to see him pass there is but one letter of this period but it gives us the picture to mrs jane clemens and family in st louis cleveland november twenty eighteen sixty eight dear folks i played against the eastern favorite fanny kimball in pittsburgh last night she had two hundred in her house and i had upwards of fifteen hundred all the seats were sold in a driving rainstorm three days ago as reserve seats at twenty-five cents extra even those in the second and third tiers and when the last seat was gone the box office had not been open more than two hours when i reached the theatre they were turning people away and the house was crammed a hundred fifty or two hundred stood up all the evening i go to elmira tonight i am simply lecturing for societies at one hundred dollars a pop yours sam it would be difficult for any family to refuse relationship with one whose star was so clearly ascending especially when every inclination was in his favor and the young lady herself encouraged his suit a provisional engagement was presently made but it was not finally ratified until february of the following year then in a letter from one of his lecture points he tells his people something of his happiness to mrs jane clemens and family in st louis lockport new york february twenty seventh eighteen sixty eight dear folks i enclose twenty dollars for ma i thought i was getting ahead of her little assessments of thirty five dollars a month but find i am falling behind with her instead and have let her go without money well i did not mean to do it but you see when people have been getting ready for months in a quiet way to get married they are bound to grow stingy and go to saving up money against that awful day when it is sure to be needed i am particularly anxious to place myself in a position where i can carry on my married life in good shape on my own hook because i have paddled my own canoe so long that i could not be satisfied now to let anybody help me and my proposed father-in-law is naturally so liberal that it would be just like him to want to give us a start in life but i don't want it that way i can start myself i don't want any help i can run this institution without any outside assistance and i shall have a wife who will stand by me like a soldier through thick and thin and never complain she is only a little body but she hasn't her peer in christendom i gave her only a plain gold engagement ring when fashion imperatively demands a two hundred dollar diamond one 
and told her it was typical of a future lot namely that she would have to flourish on substantials rather than luxuries but you see i know the girl she don't care anything about luxuries she is a splendid girl she spends no money but her usual year's allowance and she spends nearly every cent of that on other people she will be a good sensible little wife without any airs about her i don't make intercession for her beforehand and ask you to love her but there isn't any use in that you couldn't help it if you were to try i warn you that whoever comes within the fatal influence of her beautiful nature is her willing slave for evermore i take my affidavit on that statement her father and mother and brother embrace and pet her constantly precisely as if she were a sweetheart instead of a blood relation she has unlimited power over her father and yet she never uses it except to make him help people who stand in need of help but if i get fairly started on the subject of my bride i never shall get through and so i will quit right here i went to elmira a little over a week ago and stayed four days and then had to go to new york on business no further letters have been preserved until june when he is in elmira and with his fiancee reading final proofs on the new book they were having an idyllic good time of course but it was a useful time too for olivia langdon had a keen and refined literary instinct and the innocence abroad as well as mark twain's other books are better to-day for her influence it has been stated that mark twain loved the lecture platform but from his letters we see that even at this early date when he was at the height of his first great vogue as a public entertainer he had no love for platform life undoubtedly he rejoiced in the brief periods when he was actually before his audience and could play upon it with his master touch but the dreary intermissions of travel and broken sleep were too heavy a price to pay to mrs jane clemens and family in st louis elmira june four eighteen sixty eight dear folks livy sends you her love and loving good wishes and I send you mine. The last three chapters of the book came tonight. We shall read it in the morning, and then, thank goodness, we are done. In twelve months, or rather, I believe it is fourteen, I have earned just eighty dollars by my pen. Two little magazine squibs and one newspaper letter. Altogether, the idlest, laziest fourteen months I have ever spent in my life and in that time my absolute and necessary expenses have been scorchingly heavy for i have now less than three thousand six hundred dollars in bank out of the eight or nine thousand i have made during those months lecturing my expenses were something frightful during the winter i feel ashamed of my idleness and yet i have had really no inclination to do anything but court livy i haven't any other inclination yet I have determined not to work as hard traveling any more as I did last winter, and so I have resolved not to lecture outside of the six New England states next winter. My western course would easily amount to $10,000, but I would rather make two or three thousand in New England than submit again to so much wear and travel. 
I have promised to talk ten nights for a thousand dollars in the state of New York, provided the places are close together. But after all, if I get located in a newspaper in a way to suit me in the meantime, I don't want a lecture at all next winter, and probably shan't. I most cordially hate the lecture field, and after all, I shudder to think that I may never get out of it. In all conversations with Golf and Anna Dickinson, Nasby, Oliver Wendell Holmes, Wendell Phillips, and the other old stagers, I could not observe that they ever expected or hoped to get out of the business. I don't want to get wedded to it as they are. Livy thinks we can live on a very moderate sum, and that we'll not need to lecture. I know very well that she can live on a small allowance, but I am not so sure about myself. I can't scare her by reminding her that her father's family expenses are $40,000 a year because she produces the documents at once to show that precious little of this outlay is on her account. But I must not commence writing about Livy, else I should never stop. There isn't such another little piece of perfection in the world as she is. My time has become so short now that I doubt if I get to California this summer. If I manage to buy into a paper, I think I will visit you a while and not go to California, at all. I shall know something about it after my next trip to Hartford. We all go there on the 10th, the whole family, to attend a wedding on the 17th. I am offered an interest in a Cleveland paper which would pay me $2,300 to $2,500 a year, and a salary added of $3,000. The salary is fair enough, but the interest is not large enough, and so I must look a little further. The Cleveland folks say they can be induced to do a little better by me, and urge me to come out and talk business. But it don't strike me. I feel little or no inclination to go. I believe I haven't anything else to write, and it is bedtime. I want to write to Orion, but I keep putting it off. I keep putting everything off. Day after day, Livy and I are together all day long and until ten at night, and then I feel dreadfully sleepy. If Orion will bear with me and forgive me, I will square up with him yet. I will even let him kiss Livy. My love to Molly and Annie and Sammy and all. Goodbye. Affectionately, Sam. It is curious, with his tendency to optimism and general expansion of futures, that he says nothing of the possible sales of the new book, or of his expectations in that line. It was issued in July, and by June the publishers must have had promising advance orders from their canvassers, but apparently he includes none of these chickens in his financial forecast. Even when the book had been out a full month, and was being shipped at the rate of several hundreds a day, he makes no reference to it in a letter to his sister, other than to ask if she has not received a copy. This, however, was a Mark Twain peculiarity. Writing was his trade. The returns from it seldom excited him. It was only when he drifted into strange and untried fields that he began to chase rainbows, to blow iridescent bubbles and count unmined gold. To Mrs. Moffat in St. Louis. Buffalo, August 20, 1869. 
my dear sister i have only time to write a line i got your letter this morning and mailed it to livy she will be expecting me tonight and i am sorry to disappoint her so but then i couldn't well get away i will go next saturday i have bundled up livy's picture and will try and recollect to mail it tomorrow it is a porcelain type and i think you will like it i am sorry i never got to st louis because i may be too busy to go for a time but i have been busy all the time and st louis is clear out of the way and remote from the world and all ordinary routes of travel you must not place too much weight upon this idea of moving the capital from washington st louis is in some respects a better place for it than washington though there isn't more than a toss-up between the two after all one is dead and the other in a trance washington is in the center of population and business while st louis is far removed from both and you know there is no geographical center any more the railroads and telegraph have done away with all that it is no longer a matter of sufficient importance to be gravely considered by thinking men the only centers now are narrowed down to those of intelligence capital and population as i said before washington is the nearest to those and you don't have to paddle across a river on ferry-boats of a pattern popular in the dark ages to get to it nor have to clamber up vilely paved hills in rascally omnibuses along with a herd of all sorts of people after you're there secondly the removal of the capital is one of those old regular reliable dodges that are the bread and meat of backcountry congressmen it is agitated every year it always has been it always will be it is not new in any respect thirdly the capital has cost forty million dollars already and lacks a good deal of being finished yet there are single stones in the treasury building and a good many of them that cost twenty seven thousand dollars apiece and millions were spent in the construction of that and the patent office and the other great government buildings to move to st louis the country must throw away a hundred millions of capital invested in those buildings and go right to work to spend a hundred millions on new buildings in st louis shall we ever have a congress a majority of whose members are hopelessly insane probably not but it is possible unquestionably such a thing is possible only i don't believe it will happen in our time and i am satisfied the capital will not be moved until it does happen but if st louis would donate the ground and the buildings it would be a different matter no pamela i don't see any good reason to believe you or i will ever see the capital moved i have twice instructed the publishers to send you a book it was the first thing i did long before the proofs were finished write me if it is not yet done livy says we must have you all at our marriage and i say we can't it will be at christmas or new years when such a trip across the country will be equivalent to murder and arson and everything else and it would cost five hundred dollars an amount of money she don't know the value of now but will before a year is gone she grieves over it poor little rascal but it can't be helped 
she must wait a while till i am firmly on my legs and then she shall see you she says her father and mother will invite you just as soon as the wedding date is definitely fixed anyway and she thinks that's bound to settle it but the ice and snow and the long hard journey and the injudiciousness of laying out any money except what we are obliged to part with while we are so much in debt settles the case differently for it is a debt mr langdon is just as good as bound for twenty five thousand dollars for me and has already advanced half of it in cash i wrote and asked whether i had better send him my note or a due bill or how he would prefer to have the indebtedness made of record and he answered every other topic in the letter pleasantly but never replied to that at all still i shall give my note into the hands of his business agent here and pay him the interest as it falls due we must go slow we are not in the cleveland herald we are a hundred thousand times better off but there isn't so much money in it remainder missing in spite of the immediate success of his book a success the like of which had scarcely been known in america mark twain held himself to be not a literary man but a journalist he had no plans for another book as a newspaper owner and editor he expected with his marriage to settle down and devote the rest of his life to journalism the paper was the buffalo express his interest in it was one-third the purchase price twenty five thousand dollars of which he had paid a part jervis langdon his future father-in-law having furnished cash and security for the remainder he was already in possession in august but he was not regularly in buffalo that autumn for he had agreed with redpath to deliver his quaker city lecture and the tour would not end until a short time before his wedding day february two eighteen seventy our next letter hardly belongs in this collection as it was doubtless written with at least the possibility of publication in view but it is too amusing too characteristic of mark twain to be omitted it was sent in response to an invitation from the new york society of california pioneers to attend a banquet given in new york city october thirteenth eighteen sixty nine and was of course read to the assembled diners to the new york society of california pioneers in new york city elmira october eleventh eighteen sixty nine gentlemen circumstances rendered out of my power to take advantage of the invitation extended to me through mr simonton and be present at your dinner at new york i regret this very much for there are several among you whom i would have a right to join hands with on the score of old friendship and i suppose i would have a sublime general right to shake hands with the rest of you on the score of kinship in california ups and downs in search of fortune if i were to tell some of my experience you would recognize california blood in me i fancy the old old story would sound familiar no doubt i have the usual stock of reminiscences for instance i went to esmeralda early i purchased largely in the wide west winnemucca and other fine claims and was very wealthy i fared sumptuously on bread when flour was two hundred dollars a barrel and had beans for dinner every sunday 
when none but bloated aristocrats could afford such grandeur but i finished by feeding batteries in a quartz mill at fifteen dollars a week and wishing i was a battery myself and had somebody to feed me my claims in esmeralda are there yet i suppose i could be persuaded to sell i went to humboldt district when it was new i became largely interested in the alba nueva and other claims with gorgeous names and was rich again in prospect i owned a vast mining property there i would not have sold out for less than four hundred thousand dollars at that time but i will now finally i walked home two hundred miles partly for exercise and partly because stage fare was expensive next i entered upon an affluent career in virginia city and by a judicious investment of labor and the capital of friends became the owner of about all the worthless wildcat mines there were in that part of the country assessments did the business for me there there were a hundred and seventeen assessments to one dividend and the proportion of income to outlay was a little against me my financial barometer went down to thirty-two fahrenheit and the subscriber was frozen out i took up extensions on the main lead extensions that reached to british america in one direction and to the isthmus of panama in the other and i verily believe i would have been a rich man if i had ever found those infernal extensions but i didn't i ran tunnels till i tapped the arctic ocean and i sunk shafts till i broke through the roof of perdition but those extensions turned up missing every time i am willing to sell all that property and throw in the improvements perhaps you remember that celebrated north ophir i bought that mine it was very rich in pure silver you could take it out in lumps as large as a filbert but when it was discovered that those lumps were melted half dollars and hardly melted at that a painful case of salting was apparent and the undersigned adjourned to the poorhouse again i paid assessments on hale and norcross until they sold me out and i had to take in washing for a living and the next month that infamous stock went up to seven thousand dollars a foot i own millions and millions of feet of affluent silver leads in nevada in fact the entire undercrust of that country nearly and if congress would move that state off my property so that i could get at it i would be wealthy yet but no there she squats and here i am failing health persuades me to sell if you know of any one design a permanent investment i can furnish one that will have the virtue of being eternal i have been through the california mill with all its dips spurs and angles variations and sinuosities i have worked there at all the different trades and professions known to the catalogues i have been everything from a newspaper editor down to a cow-catcher on a locomotive and i am encouraged to believe that if there had been a few more occupations to experiment on i might have had a dazzling success at last and found out what mysterious designs providence had in creating me but you perceive that although i am not a pioneer i have had a sufficiently variegated time of it to enable me to talk pioneer like a native and feel like a forty-niner 
therefore i cordially welcome you to your old remembered homes and your long deserted firesides and close this screed with the sincere hope that your visit here will be a happy one and not embittered by the sorrowful surprises that absence and lapse of years are wont to prepare for wanderers surprises which come in the form of old friends missed from their places silence where familiar voices should be the young grown old change and decay everywhere home a delusion and a disappointment strangers at hearthstone sorrow where gladness was tears for laughter the melancholy pomp of death where the grace of life has been with all good wishes for the returned prodigals and regrets that i cannot partake of a small piece of the fatted calf rare and no gravy i am yours cordially mark twain in the next letter we find him in the midst of a sort of confusion of affairs which in one form or another would follow him throughout the rest of his life it was the price of his success and popularity combined with his general gift for being concerned with a number of things and a natural tendency for getting into hot water which becomes more evident as the years and letters pass in review orion clemens in his attempt to save money for the government had employed methods and agents which the officials at washington did not understand and refused to recognize instead of winning the credit and commendation he had expected he now found himself pursued by claims of considerable proportions the land referred to is the tennessee tract the heritage which john clemens had provided for his children mark twain had long since lost faith in it and was not only willing but eager to renounce his rights nasby is of course david r locke of the toledo blade whose popularity at this time both as a lecturer and writer was very great clemens had met him here and there on their platform tour and they had become good friends clemens in fact had once proposed to nasby a joint trip to the pacific coast the california idea had been given up but both mark twain and nasby found engagements enough and sufficient profit east of the mississippi boston was often their headquarters that winter sixty nine and seventy and they were much together josh billings another of redpath's lecturers was likewise often to be found in the lyceum offices there is a photograph of mark twain nasby and josh billings together clemens also that winter met william dean howells then in the early days of his association with the atlantic monthly the two men so widely different became firm friends at sight and it was to howells in the years to come that mark twain would write more letters and more characteristic letters than to any other living man howells had favorably reviewed the innocents abroad and after the first moment of their introduction had passed clemens said when i read that review of yours i felt like the woman who said that she was so glad that a baby had come white it was not the sort of thing that howells would have said but it was the sort of thing that he could understand and appreciate from mark twain in company with nasby clemens that season also met oliver wendell holmes later he had sent holmes a copy of his book and received a pleasantly appreciative reply i always like wrote holmes 
to hear what one of my fellow countrymen who is not a hebrew scholar or a reader of hieroglyphics but a good-humoured traveller with a pair of sharp twinkling yankee in the broader sense eyes in his head has to say about the things that learned travellers often make unintelligible and sentimental ones ridiculous or absurd i hope your booksellers will sell a hundred thousand copies of your travels a wish that was realized in due time though it is doubtful if dr holmes or any one else at the moment believed that a book of that nature and price it was three dollars and fifty cents a copy would ever reach such a sale to mrs moffat in st louis boston november nine eighteen sixty nine my dear sister three or four letters just received from home my first impulse was to send orion a check on my publisher for the money he wants but a sober second thought suggested that if he has not defrauded the government out of money why pay simply because the government chooses to consider him in its debt no right is right the idea don't suit me let him write the treasury the state of the case and tell them he has no money if they make his sureties pay then i will make the sureties whole but i won't pay a cent of an unjust claim you talk of disgrace to my mind it would be just as disgraceful to allow one's self to be bullied into paying that which is unjust ma thinks it is hard that orion's share of the land should be swept away just as it is right on the point as it always has been of becoming valuable let her rest easy on that point this letter is his ample authority to sell my share of the land immediately and appropriate the proceeds giving no account to me but repaying the amount to ma first or in case of her death to you or your heirs whenever in the future he shall be able to do it now i want no hesitation in this matter i renounce my ownership from this date for this purpose provided it is sold just as suddenly as he can sell it in the next place mr langdon is old and is trying hard to withdraw from business and seek repose i will not burden him with a purchase but i will ask him to take full possession of a coal tract of the land without paying a cent simply conditioning that he shall mine and throw the coal into market at his own cost and pay to you and all of you what he thinks is a fair portion of the profits accruing you can do as you please with the rest of the land therefore send me to elmira information about the coal deposits so framed that he can comprehend the matter and can intelligently instruct an agent how to find it and go to work tomorrow night i appear for the first time before a boston audience four thousand critics and on the success of this matter depends my future success in new england but i am not distressed nasby is in the same boat tonight decides the fate of his brand new lecture he has just left my room been reading his lecture to me was greatly depressed i have convinced him that he has little to fear i get just about five hundred more applications to lecture than i can possibly fill and in the west they say charge all you please but come i shan't go west at all 
I stop lecturing the 22nd of January, sure. But I shall talk every night up to that time. They flood me with high-priced invitations to write for magazines and papers, and publishers besiege me to write books. Can't do any of these things. I am $22,000 in debt, and shall earn the money and pay it within two years, and therefore I am not spending any money except when it is necessary. I had my life insured for $10,000 yesterday. Whatever became of Mr. Moffat's life insurance? For the benefit of my natural heirs, the same being my mother. For Livy wouldn't claim it, you may be sure of that. This has taken $200 out of my pocket, which I was going to send to Ma. But I will send her some soon. Tell Orion to keep a stiff upper lip. When the worst comes to the worst, I will come forward. Must talk in Providence, Rhode Island tonight. Must leave now. I thank Molly and Orion and the rest for your letters. But you see how I am pushed. Ought to have six clerks. Affectionately, Sam. By the end of January 1870, more than 30,000 copies of The Innocents had been sold, and in a letter to his publisher the author expressed his satisfaction. To Elijah Bliss in Hartford, Elmira, January 28, 70. Friend Bliss, yes, I am satisfied with the way you are running the book. You are running it in staving, tip-top, first-class style. I never wander into any corner of the country, but I find that an agent has been there before me, and many of that community have read the book, and on an average about ten people a day come and hunt me up to thank me and tell me I'm a benefactor. I guess this is a part of the program we didn't expect in the first place. I think you are rushing this book in a manner to be proud of, and you will make the finest success of it that has ever been made with a subscription book, I believe. What with advertising, establishing agencies, etc., you have got an enormous lot of machinery under way and hard at work in a wonderfully short space of time. It is easy to see, when one travels around, that one must be endowed with a deal of genuine generalship in order to maneuver a publication whose line of battle stretches from end to end of a great continent, and whose foragers and skirmishers invest every hamlet and besiege every village hidden away in all the vast space between. I'll back you against any publisher in America, bliss or elsewhere. Yours as ever, Clemens. There is another letter written just at this time which of all letters must not be omitted here. Only five years earlier Mark Twain, poor and comparatively unknown, had been carrying water while Jim Gillis and Dick Stoker washed out the pans of dirt in search of the gold pocket which they did not find. Clemens must have received a letter from Gillis referring to some particular occasion, but it has disappeared. The reply, however, always remained one of James Gillis's treasured possessions. To James Gillis, in his cabin on Jackass Hill, Tuolumne County, California. Elmira, New York, January 26, 70. Dear Jim, I remember that old night just as well, 
and somewhere among my relics I have your remembrance stored away. It makes my heart ache yet to call to mind some of those days. Still, it shouldn't, for right in the depths of their poverty and their pocket-hunting vagabondage lay the germ of my coming good fortune. You remember the one gleam of jollity that shot across our dismal sojourn in the rain and mud of Angel's Camp? I mean that day we sat around the tavern stove and heard that chap tell about the frog and how they filled him with shot. And you remember how we quoted from the yarn and laughed over it out there on the hillside while you and dear old Stoker panned and washed. I jotted the story down in my notebook that day and would have been glad to get ten or fifteen dollars for it. I was just that blind. But then we were so hard up. I published that story, and it became widely known in America, India, China, England, and the reputation it made for me has paid me thousands and thousands of dollars since. Four or five months ago I bought into the Express. I have ordered it sent to you as long as you live, and if the bookkeeper sends you any bills, you let me hear of it. I went heavily in debt. Never could have dared to do that, Jim if we hadn't heard the jumping frog story that day. And wouldn't I love to take old Stoker by the hand, and wouldn't I love to see him in his great specialty, his wonderful rendition of Rinald's In the Burning Shame. Where is Dick, and what is he doing? Give him my fervent love and warm old remembrances. A week from today I shall be married to a girl even better and lovelier than the peerless chaparral quails. You can't come so far, Jim, but still I cordially invite you to come, anyhow. And I invite Dick, too. And if you two boys were to land here on that pleasant occasion, we would make you right royally welcome. Truly your friend, Samuel L. Clemens. P.S. California plums are good, Jim, particularly when they are stewed. Steve Gillis, who sent a copy of his letter to the writer, added, Dick Stoker, dear, gentle, unselfish old Dick, died over three years ago, aged seventy-eight. I am sure it will be a melancholy pleasure to Mark to know that Dick lived in comfort all his later life, sincerely loved and respected by all who knew him. He never left Jackass Hill. He struck a pocket years ago, containing enough not only to build himself a comfortable house near his old cabin, but to last him, without work, to his painless end. He was a mason, and was buried by the order in Sonora. The quails, the beautiful, the innocent, the wild little quails, lived way out in the chaparral, on a little ranch near the Stanislaus River, with their father and mother. They were famous for their beauty and had many suitors. The mention of California plums refers to some inedible fruit which Gillis once, out of pure goodness of heart, bought of a poor wandering squaw, and then, to conceal his motive, declared that they were something rare and fine, and persisted in eating them, though even when stewed they nearly choked him. End of section 10. Recording by James K. White, Chula Vista.